between now and Lent, we're going to go through, we're going to take a break on Matthew, and we're going to just talk through some of our favorite passages for a few weeks. I think we have six or seven weeks, and we're just going to go through, um, some of us are going to teach on just our favorite passages that we enjoy teaching on, or that we enjoy reading, or something that's caught our attention. So if, if you have been wanting a break from Matthew, congratulations. If, if you're hoping to get back in there, right after Lent we will, and we'll be, we'll be fine. So this week, though, let's turn to John 8. Um, this is one of my favorite all time. So we're going to go to John 8. And if you wanted to hold your place on John 3, you can do that too. But we're not going to talk about it long, so you don't have to. I'll read it to you. <clears throat> um, and I've been reading about John 8 for a while because what can happen to us is when you like a passage, right? You like something in Scripture, you kind of, it's hard for you to think about it freshly, you know, because you like always know what you like about it, right? It's like if you have a favorite book you've read more than once, you like can't wait to get to the part you like, you know what I'm saying? Um, I know I've, I've read East of Eden a few times, and when I get like close to the end, I skip a bunch of stuff to get to like the last three pages because they're my favorite thing in that entire book by a lot, right? So that can happen, you know? So this time though, I was really trying to look at this fresh really, really trying to give this like an honest attempt for maybe something new to be shown to us. Um, I've, I've looked at different commentaries this time to try to look. So I'm excited about it and I want us to talk about it, okay, in John 8. So I'm going to start reading and we'll kind of focus on three stages of the story, okay? Um, and it's this story. It says this, um, they went each to their own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, the each to their own house are some of the disciples and then also the, the broad term of disciples that are following Jesus and then also those that are just listening to him teach now that he's in Jerusalem, okay? So it's, it's this thing where he's kind of being welcomed onto the scene and so a lot of people are intrigued by Jesus and he says, okay, I'm done for the day. You should go home, <laughs> whatever. Like, go from here, you know what I mean? So they all go to their house and then Jesus says, or it says, Early in the morning, he came out again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down, and he began to teach them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Now, go from here and sin no more. So let's, let's start kind of at the beginning of the story. Jesus is teaching, and it's, it's clear and vague, but there's a woman that's brought to, in front of Jesus and in front of 
all the people who came to him, right? Now, all the people who came to him is just probably a very big crowd, right? It's like saying, it's like going to a UT football game and being like, dude, everyone was there, right? The city of Austin wasn't all there, um, but is enough people, it's a lot. And it's like everybody, everyone was there. The game was full. It was, it was packed, right? That's what's happening here. The, the, the idea is that at this portion of the temple, everyone that can be there, everyone who's everyone, is there to do commerce, to, to worship, to explore thought, to listen to Jesus, this new rabbi. All of these things are happening right here. And in the midst of that, the Pharisees and scribes say, Aha, we've got a plan. Let's trap Jesus. Let's drag this woman in, in front of everyone, the everyone that's everyone, and announce to everyone, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, meaning there's a layer of embarrassment in that, right? Being caught in the act of that is different than saying, oh, so-and-so admitted to doing it. It's like, oh no, somehow people burst into the scene and we know what's happened here. Drag her up in front of everyone and announce it. In front of everyone, what should we do? And everyone there knows, including this woman, including the woman, that she's just being used to trap a man. That's the deal. Being used to trap a rabbi they don't like yet. Now, again, the being caught doing what your society says is the worst sin you can commit against yourself, against two families, um, also, too, wh- how many of the people in the act of committing adultery do they bring? I love that, right? The guy gets to stay home and not have the shame of being there, right? But she's caught in what her society, dominated by the people that come and bring her there, this group of men that set the laws and interpret the laws that do these things, not only is the embarrassment and the shame of, yep, I have actually done this. I have done something that, that shames my family, hurts my family, may end my family, may end another family. All of these levels with it. And then you get paraded to the temple, to the place, the most holy place in your culture, the, the center of what your religion and your culture and your meaning within that family means. And you get announced of what you've done, and you only get announced and you only get brought there not because they care about you or probably even what you've done, but just to use you as a a political stunt towards someone else. And the layers of that, and the difficulty of that, and the shame in that. And then when they do so, Jesus does this very strange thing that people read into all the time. What's he start doing, right? He bends down and draws in the dirt. Very Interesting choice, Jesus there, right? You can read a bunch of commentaries or books that'll say, what was he drawing? Was he, was he writing the law down, showing that he knew it, you know? Was he listing the names of, of, of people and members of the crowd that have committed adultery themselves? Is that what Jesus was doing? Or was Jesus simply drawing a cloud and a tree with a deer beside it, right? We, we don't know the idea, though, and I think the, the part that should mean a lot to us in this like first stage of the story is that Jesus, at this point, shows that he doesn't entertain the accuser. He's, he's not 
intrigued by what's happened. He doesn't look angry. He doesn't, he doesn't look involved. He's not, oh, he's not put off and incredibly disappointed in what's gone on, right? He just is not entertaining it whatsoever. He's ignoring what they're bringing to him, right? This huge scene that everyone, it's a, it's a dramatic situation, that everyone's looking to Jesus, looking back at the people. And it says they continue to ask him. So are you just going to sit there and draw on the dirt? Are you listening to us? Did you hear us? We said blank. Oh, her name is this. Do you not know? It's the family of sons. They, they keep on and keep on. And Jesus, again, is showing he does not entertain that. That, that is not what he's about. That's not what he's come for. That's not what he's interested in doing at the time. And then he stands up and says this line that we love, right? If any of you is without sin, be the first one to throw a stone at her, right? And, and to me in the past, before I've, I've been reading more about it over the holiday, it, I just used to love just the, the practicality of what Jesus says, but it's actually more than that. And here's what's so intriguing. So in, they're not wrong. The, the Pharisees and scribes aren't wrong in what they're saying, Right? And, and a lot of times we pit this story as Old Testament versus Jesus, right? Jesus versus law. Because the law does say that if you're caught in adultery, they stone the woman. That, that is what the law says specifically. But there's also opportunity within the law for the judges and the leaders to make a graceful verdict and a gracious verdict. And that's what Jesus starts to do. See, because in, in order to do that in... in the past of Jewish law, and especially now, and especially during the inner biblical period between Old Testament and New Testament, there started to be these like this, this idea of pressing grace in the Sanhedrin and in like the judging of people as they sin morally. So you would have these people trying to find ways to add grace, so you just didn't stone everyone for everything, right? Or you, you wouldn't have any people, and Jesus shows that in this story. Who, who would be left? If we stone everyone who sins, right? That's the, that's the whole thing. And so the law also in Moses says that you have to have what? To be able to accuse someone. To have credible witnesses. And you have to have how many? Do you know? You have to have more than one. You have to have two. Credible witnesses. And so what people would begin to do in order to find grace with people is they started to say, you know what? No, if it's family, it can't be a witness because you have a conflict of interest there, Right? Or if you're an enemy of the person, or if anyone's ever known you to be an enemy of the person, you you also can't be a witness there. Or if you're a person of bad moral character, or just a shady individual, or if you're not prominent in society, then you can't be a credible witness. And so they might punish the person, but they wouldn't let them be stoned to death. And so what, what a lot of people are thinking Jesus does here, which I think is so brilliant, is he doesn't pit himself against the law here. Jesus doesn't say, no, forget about what Moses said. I'm doing something completely separate of that that doesn't have any tie to it. He says, you know what, actually, I'm going to fulfill the law in the most beautiful way and tell you that if that's how we want to live, if we want to live lives where we stone those who sin in this way, and only half of the party, by the way, if we're going to stone half of the party involved in this sinful life, in this act, I'm going to show you that there are now no credible witnesses. None of you can say you are a righteous witness of this. And he's saying this to the who's who 
of the entire culture and society. He's saying this to the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who, who get to be the judges, the jury, and the executioner. This is the other interesting thing, is the witnesses in these kind of cases had to throw the first stone. That was the rule. If you were the witness, if you would have caught the person in adultery and then brought them there, and you were shown as a credible witness, you were shown as not to have done it out of malice, you were shown to have just happened upon the situation, and your morals were so right that you had to report it and had to bring it to the Sanhedrin, then you would have to be asked to cast the first stone. And honestly, a lot of people didn't want to do that, right? We want to judge each other. We want to condemn each other without having to be the executioner, right? We want someone else to do it. We want society to hate them, right? We want collectively to pass judgment on each other, on ourselves, on the people around us. And so Jesus steps into that part of the Jewish story and in that part of the law and says, no, you don't understand. God's grace gave a way out even for this law of Moses. God's grace, as the people of Israel marched through the wilderness, as they failed and ruined things, as they worshiped idols and I had to forgive, there was always paths of grace. And I'm going to use the one that you understand because this is the only way you're going to understand that I'm not discounting the law of Moses. I'm fulfilling it. I'm saying, no, read it better. I'm saying, no, understand it more deeply. I'm not saying the law is no good. I'm saying, look what the law offered to us. Find the grace in the midst of it. And Jesus says to them, and the oldest, the wisest ones, what do they do? They leave first. They say, well, I'm not a credible witness. I don't want to throw the first stone. I'm gone. He's done it. He's loved the woman and fulfilled the law. There's nothing that could be said, right? If he stones the woman, he says, let's go. Who's the first one? Let's do it right now, right? Then, oh, he's a murderous man. He's too hard, right? He, he doesn't love well. He did this in front of everyone. Did everyone see who Jesus finally was. And then if he says, no, 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 that's not how we do it anymore, then, oh, so you're discounting this law of Moses that you've already talked about, that you already have said you loved over and over again? And so he fulfills it. And then, even after that, and this is like the, I feel like the third stage of the story. So after we have, she's brought here, thrown in the midst of them, um, <laughs> we have this, altercation with the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rest of the people and everyone leaves. And who's left? Just him and this woman, right? And he just straight away says to her, where is everybody? Where are they? And she looks around, says there's nobody. There's no one left. He says, so no one's condemning you? She says, no. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, here's what's interesting, I feel like, about that statement. So, and this is where John 3 comes in, right? Do we know, can someone just quote John 3.16? What is it? 
Exactly. Wonderful. Do we know John 3, 17? Here, let's go to it. Let's turn to it. That's okay. It's, it's no, there's no shame in that. I didn't mean, she knew John 3, 16. That was awesome. No one else said anything, so I don't want to hear it. So, 3, 17 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, here's what's interesting, is condemned already. This idea is that Jesus doesn't have to do the condemning. We've done that. We know how to do that. By our actions, by our stances, by our offhanded comments, by our choices, by just our nature, by our systems, by our our ways we spend money, by the ways we treat our spouses, by the way we work with people and try to get ahead of everyone we come in contact with. We've done the condemning. That part, Jesus does not have to be a part of. We've done that. And then this idea of condemning, what does it mean to condemn? What does a word mean? We say it all the time. It sounds like a churchy word. I don't say it a lot at work. I condemn your behavior. Like, we don't, we don't do that now. Well, so what's the word mean? Do we know? It's this idea of casting a final judgment. It's the idea of casting a final judgment that will lead to obvious consequences. It's not just having an opinion on a thing, right? It's not condemning for me to say, hey, son, son, don't do that. Don't talk to your mother that way. That's not condemning him. That's teaching, coaching. It's telling him what's right and what's wrong. To condemn him would be to say, how dare you? You always talk to your mother this way, and you obviously always will because you're wicked inside, and I've had enough, and your consequences now you're not a part of it. That's the difference. There's a difference between, between this idea of judgment and then condemnation, right? And Jesus says, I didn't come to do that in the first place. I wasn't sent for that. But how difficult is it for us to remember that? We are very quick to imagine God's face to us and the Holy Spirit to us as being ready and willing and almost excited to condemn us from our behavior. From something we did eight years ago to something we did last Wednesday to something you did this morning when you woke up. We are so quick to say, I knew it, I'll always be this way. No wonder God is not interested in using me. No wonder I'm this way. No wonder this has been brought on me. I'm always going to do this. And we picture this condemning God, this condemning Jesus, that, that says, because you've done blank, it's over for you once and for all. And this woman shows that that is not the case. She does do this. And Jesus says to her, after neither do I condemn you, what does he then say? Go. Some versions say, leave your life of sin. Some say, go and sin no more. Does he say, though? And here's the, here's the interesting thing. Does he bring all to, both families together and say, you are no longer allowed to have consequences from this. It is completely over. I've forgotten it in every way. No. Does he say, you don't have to tell anyone what you've done. We'll all keep it a secret here. Everything's all set. You're good to go. Keep, keep just living, right? No. We know from our life there are obvious consequences 
to her and this other man's actions. Both of those families, if they're not ruined, are damaged. Absolutely. And we know that we have done similar things in our lives. We have made choices. We have created systems. We have lived certain ways that have caused damage to ourselves and the people around us, to our spouses, to our kids, to the people we love the most at our job, to the people who trust us here in this room. We do things all the time that cause actual damage and that are things where Jesus would say, no, leave this life of sin, right? But the the exciting part about the story, and I think what we, we can't forget, is that that's not the end of it. That the condemnation isn't final. That's why Jesus says, no, then I don't condemn you. He says, I don't say, it's okay, you can do that now. That law is passed. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We can all commit adultery whenever we feel like. He says, no, the idea though is that when we lose ourselves and when we do something against ourselves that's, that's maybe heinous, maybe it's just heinous to you, or maybe when you're about to go to bed, you can't stop thinking about it, right? Whatever that thing is, it's not final. There's no condemnation on it. That's why Paul is so excited to tell people later, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever we've done, we can rebuild. We can start anew. We can turn it around. Like we say at the Everest house, we tell our boys, let's stop and just turn it around right now. That is what Jesus comes to offer. And he says, live different, live better, live more joyful, live more loving right now. Go deal with the consequences that are coming, and they're coming for these families. But he says it's not final. It's never final when it's with Christ Jesus. And that, that is the exciting point of Jesus saying, that I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it in all of its mess, in the midst of, of it destroying itself, in the midst of us doing the same things over and over and over and over again, of us not being happy with who we are, to us wanting desperately to change. He says, then do. Now, start over right now. To this woman, start over right now. Just go. Live right now. What you've done does not define you. What you've done is not final. And that was unheard of in this time. Your your kids might be blind from what you've done. In their time. And honestly, we're not so different. We think the things we did three years ago will follow us till we're dead. We think the mistakes we make are always on our backs. We can't get them out of our face, you know? And Jesus says, you don't understand. I didn't come for that. I didn't come to condemn you. You've done that on your own. You already feel that from yourself. He said, no, I've, I've come to give you life and give it absolutely to the full. And so this story can tell us that. And we also can see that even this morning, today, this afternoon, whatever, we can start afresh because anything on your back is not final. That's not your story forever. We don't have to live in that narrative till we're dead. And so I want us to to stand with that in mind, and we're going to 
have communion together. And I want us to, as we take communion, as we take the bread and dip it in the cup, if you need to, think about the things you don't want to be final. (laughs) Confess those things now. This is the time to say, yes, this is who I've been. This is, this is what I've done. This is what I hate carrying. This, I, I can't stand to think about and have the guilt and condemnation of anymore. Can you please take it in your body, in your blood, in your life? This idea that Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Can we try to like have that belief put on us? You know, It's like you don't have to muster it up. We can just ask God to grace us with it. You know, It's like wanting to want to believe, you know? And so as we take communion, maybe we take communion with that hope.